Hey, so welcome from whenever and wherever you are watching. Uh, we are just right before Halloween this week, and Halloween really is one of those great holidays. I know in the church for ages it's been like, oh, it's evil, run away from Halloween. I don't think that's what we should do, although this year there is a pandemic, so there are different ways to go about that. But what we are doing this year, as you probably saw in the announcements, is there's a map that we have of people who are willing to open their homes and follow county guidelines to still be able to hand out candy. And if you would like to get that, there's a link tree that comes up after this message that you can get that on, find out where those houses are, go and show up, say trick or treat, let your kids hang out. But it's also a great opportunity to get to know your neighbors. And so I would also encourage you that during this holiday, you take some time to do that. When people can come by and you can say hi, get to know them and get to know their kids at a safe distance, apparently. But it really is a great holiday to be able to do that. So don't forget that. That Halloween isn't something we run from. It's something that we can redeem with the grace and the goodness of God. Also, this afternoon from 12 to 3, as you also saw, is that pumpkin patch. Come out for that. Uh, Come and see some other people and wave at them and do all of those things and get to know and see people maybe you haven't seen in a while. It should be a great opportunity to have a a whole lot of fun socially distance <laughs> with one another. Uh, as a reminder, in the middle of this message, you're going to get a slide. The slide's going to come up and give you opportunity to take care of your kids, get a cup of coffee, uh, pause it and ask one another that question or journal that down and work through a couple things as we're going through the message. And if you have a smart device, you can open that up, download an app called Uversion. In Uversion, you click on More and then Events. If you're in our local area, we will come up by GPS in your smart device and you will get sermon notes verses, questions, announcements, all we go through the day. If you're not in our local area, you type in the zip code 93455, and you'll still get all those things as it will come up. That way, my name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors at Element. If you are so inclined, you can stand with me for the reading of God's Word where you are. And this is Acts 28, verse 20. It says, For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Let's pray. Uh, Father, this morning, uh, we ask that you would take us and teach us what it means to be those who trust you no matter what our situation is, and that you can re-narrate all the things that we go through in light of the good news of the gospel that will teach us to be a people who walk in ways that bring you great glory as we find meaning in everything that we go through. So teach us truly to be your people and trust you for the redemption that we have received by your gracious gift. Amen. Okay, so we are coming right up to the end of the book of Acts. This is week 41. Ending Acts is going to feel like a great milestone. Well, at least for me. I don't know if it's going to feel that way for you, but for me, it really does. And today we're going to look at what Paul does after he gets into the city of Rome. Last week we saw he was encouraged before he went into the city. And today it's going to harken back to another message that we talked about before with Paul and his chains. So if you hear me talking about chains, don't think it's deja vu or you tuned into an old message. Where we're going today is with something I think is really important to understand. And that is how in light of the gospel, Jesus re-narrates everything in our lives. What I love about Paul is that he doesn't point to his chains and how dare you God do this to me, but he almost points to it as a badge of honor to be in the position that he was. I mean, yes, he would have rather have been free. He would rather have not had his countrymen try to kill him, but he was where he was because of the message that he was proclaiming, the freedom and the hope and the grace and the person of Jesus Christ. And he's not about to backpedal. Uh, 
really where he is are his chains are a witness to his witness. Uh, In Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, Paul says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, Paul says that, and he writes that book in Rome while he's in chains. And then he says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And that is just kind of crazy. Instead of now shaking their head at Paul like, oh my goodness, what's God doing? Oh, Paul's arrested again. Look at his poor life. It's actually making them more confident to speak about the gospel. And this is really a complete change in where the church kind of started to where they were at this point to even where I think where we are today. Originally, what happened is everyone believed, the crowds to the religious leaders, that when the Messiah, when the Christ came, he would be the one guy who could defeat and beat Rome and get rid of them, at least out of Jerusalem and Israel and that Palestine area. But that's how everyone thought that you would know who the Messiah was was. They were the person who would show up and wage war against Rome. If you thought you might be the Messiah, well, you had to wage war against Rome. And if you lost, well, you got crucified, and therefore, you weren't the Messiah. And the common thinking is, if you got crucified, you were not the Messiah. And I told you a little bit ago that in Jesus' day, there were upwards of 18 different Messiahs that we knew of, not like walking around when he was there, but in the years leading up to to him. And so all these messiahs, every single one of them died. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 5 if you have them with you. Uh, Earlier in Acts, there is this rabbi. His name is Gamaliel. And he argues for letting Peter and John out of prison because Jesus was crucified. So he what? Because he was crucified, well, he couldn't really be the Messiah, right? So you should let these guys go because eventually this whole movement of Christianity, it's just going to fade away. That's the conventional wisdom. In Acts 5, 35 and 36, Gamaliel speaks to this council, the, some, the same one that went after Paul. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. That is Peter and John at the time. For before these days, Thudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. Now, the the Roman Jewish historian Josephus tells us about Thudas. He claims to be a Messiah. So, if it was true, Thudas Christ. That, that would be who, who, what we call him today. Anyway, but he gets a bunch of people to fight for him. How does he do that? Well, he says he can part the Jordan River. He can cause the walls of Jerusalem to come down. Neither of those things he actually did, but he gets a lot of people to follow him. And eventually, he gets arrested by Rome. He is captured, taken into the city of Jerusalem, and he is beheaded in front of all of his followers. Very Ned Stark-like. So that's kind of the end of his story. Gamaliel, though, continues, Verse 37 of Acts chapter 5. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. Now, Judas the Galilean, again, another Messiah. Imagine that today, Judas Christ. I mean, you've probably heard the band Judas Priest, but Judas Christ, that would just be weird again. But he was also killed by Rome. How does he get a following? How does he say he is the Messiah and the Christ? Well, he's part of a group known as the Zealots. And he starts to complain about the idolatry that is in the Roman Empire because Caesar's face is on all the coins. Therefore, you should not pay taxes to Rome because that's idolatry. Can you imagine anybody ever getting worked up over taxes? 
Yeah, could happen today. I, I get it. I get it. So the zealots, what they try to do is get the mass of Israelites to raise up because there's more Israelites than there are Romans in our country right now. And if we all rose up, well, God would bless that and we would take over and get rid of them. You know what happened? He got arrested and he got killed and they crucified 2,000 zealots. That's what happened. Now, Gamaliel, historically, was hugely respected. They listened to him because at the time of Jesus, there were two main rabbis that people would teach in the name of, Hillel and Shammai. Hillel was always considered the greater teacher. Jesus' teachings actually agree with Hillel about 20 or 90% of the time. Hillel was so influential that they believed that later laws of interpretation all stemmed out of his. Now, he dies in 10 AD after the birth of Jesus, but he is known for this saying, that which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. And so when Jesus comes, he will take Hillel's greatest statement and turn it from a negative into a positive in Matthew seven twelve, when Jesus says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, Gamaliel was Hillel's grandson, and that is why he is listened to. That's why he's respected. It's part of the reason he probably finds a place in the book of Acts, other than he is also Paul's rabbi when Paul was learning underneath him. And it's interesting also, the second son of Gamaliel, if you care, his name was Abibo, and he became a Christian, and he is venerated as a saint. But Gamaliel says, look, if God is not in this, it's not going to come to anything, so don't worry about it because Jesus was crucified. But the interesting thing is, God must have been in it, right? Because Christianity continued to flourish, and there is a reason for that. Because Christians began to see what happened to Jesus was actually victory, our victory over sin and death that God gave to us. How does that common knowledge of chains and imprisonment and seeming to lose to the Romans go from that defeat and failure to a sign of God's blessing? Well, this is what we call the gospel. This is what Jesus did to rescue us, and it reframes and re-narrates all of our lives. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 28. Now, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, Paul quotes what most scholars believe is one of the oldest hymns in the Christian church, probably written maybe just three to four years after the resurrection. And what did they sing? They sang that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. Jesus turns what everyone thought was His failure or God's failure into God's definitive act of redemptive grace. And it changes how Christians today see everything, but it started to change how Christians saw things then. How God was going to use what they were going through for His glory. Paul's chains, their chains, even our chains can all be part of God's glory. So Paul arrives at Rome that we saw last week, and just three days later, this is what he does. Acts 28, starting in verse 17. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty. That means when the Romans examined me, they wanted to set me free because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. And when Paul says that, what he he means is, I'm going to stand in front of Caesar, and Caesar's going to say, well, then why are you here? And Paul's going to be like, well, the Jews did this thing, and they had me arrested, and, and it may go back bad on his people. Verse 20, for this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. 
Now, Rome at this time is much like today. A lot of different people groups coming through that city, all walks of life. There's a very large Jewish population in Rome at this point with dozens of synagogues from people who had kind of different cultural upbringings. And what you see is it's kind of like America today. You know, different language groups, cultures, people like a church in the Deep South is different than a church in New York versus a church in California. But hopefully we all worship the one true God. But they come to Paul's house here. Why do they do that? Well, Paul invites all these people from all these other different walks and all these synagogues to come together because he wants at all costs probably to avoid another riot, not just for his own sake, but for the sake of the gospel. Now, we are told back in Acts chapter 18 how the emperor Claudius, prior to Nero, had thrown all of the Jews out of Rome because of a commotion over Jesus, who the Romans called Crestus. Claudius is gone, and now the Jews are back in Rome, probably about for five to six years now. And so Paul is now talking again about Crestus, about Jesus. And he's kind of bringing this up. And so come to my house. There's Roman guards there. No one's going to get too excited about anything. We're all going to be okay. Now, if you care, the year this is taking place is most likely 60 AD. Uh, Nero succeeded Claudius in 54 AD and rescinded that order to kick all the Jews out. Uh, Nero kind of started well, but by about 60 AD, he showed signs of insanity. And really, if things kind of went downhill from there, but nobody wanted to really confront him that much. But Paul doesn't want what happened under Claudius to happen again under Nero. So Paul gets to his explanation with them right away. He doesn't want his message or his chains to make a divide between him and his people. And when you see what Paul says, it looks kind of weird to us, I think, because if you invite people over and you start a conversation with, hey, uh, you need to know I've done nothing wrong or said anything about our nation or its heritage or our people. It kind of seems to me that if you start a conversation like that, maybe you said something about your nation or your heritage or your people. (laughs) It's like, I protest too too much in the midst of that. But Paul starts the way that he does because he doesn't know what reports about him have made it to the synagogues of the Jews in Rome at that point. So he's probably trying to hedge his bets of where they are. Uh, they, They know he is in jail. He has been charged with something. And so he insists to his fellow Jews, I'm a Jew like you. That's what I am. I simply believe that the hope that God always promised has come in the person of Jesus. Uh, Paul doesn't want these Jewish people to think that he wants any type of judgment to fall on his people when he appealed to Rome. So Paul insists to those Jewish leaders, what he had insisted to the crowd in Jerusalem, uh, to Festus, to Felix, to the Sanhedrin, to Agrippa, to the entire tribunal, that it is only because of Israel's hope that he is in these chains. And Paul has had lots of difficulties with his countrymen, but he still loves them because they are a people who have gone through millennia of darkness and oppression, and they are still there, and God still loves them. So verse 21 of Acts chapter 28, And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So I think Paul has a sense of relief here. Uh, No letters have gone to the Jewish leaders there about him. And another thing is, they don't really seem concerned about it. So it's like, whew, dodged a bullet there. Um, Nobody had warned the the Jews that are trying to kill Paul when they saw him. No one had said, don't let him talk to the Roman magistrates or anything like that. The only thing they know is that Paul claims to be a follower of Jesus and nobody anywhere has anything good to say about those Christians, which is a sad state of affairs, which 
kind of relates to today as well. But Paul approaches them in gentleness. He's going to show how learned he is, how he was a Pharisee. Uh, All the things that they want to know about the law, Paul learned, Paul knew, Paul could explain. And so I'm sure they're very curious. Okay, so what are you going to say when you get there? What's this whole thing really about? So verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expanded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. So Paul takes the entire Old Testament, everything that they had learned and known, and he re-explains to them all of those things in light of Jesus. So right here, my slide's going to go up. And here's my question for you in this. What were the words spoken to you when you believed in Jesus? What were the things in your life that had to be re-narrated for you that you understood differently when the understanding of who Jesus is was spoken into your life when you believed? So what kind of things were that? Now, uh, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, but keep your place in Acts 28. What happens here and what Paul is doing is exactly what Jesus had to do with his very own disciples. He had to re-explain to them God's intent in the world apart from all of their preconceived ideas. And I don't know if you know how hard it is to get people to step away from their preconceived ideas. It's really hard. We all have preconceived ideas. We read news stories that agree with us. We read books that agree with us. We surround ourselves with friends who agree with us. We teach our children to agree with us. And then they become teenagers and they disagree with everything you said. But that that comes later. If something challenges us, we push back against it. And here I see Paul just like Jesus after the resurrection, where Jesus has to come and explain to his disciples what the resurrection actually meant. That's what Paul's doing in Rome. Now, Jesus does this on the road to Emmaus. There are these two guys, and they're walking, discussing Jesus' death, the rumors that the the body is now missing, and what's happening and all that. And Jesus just kind of shows up. Now, they don't recognize Jesus probably because they assume that he's dead and he's buried somewhere, so why would you be looking for him? And he's like, hey, what are you guys talking about? What's going on? This seems kind of interesting. And the main speaker here is a guy named Cleopas. And so Jesus asked Cleopas these questions. In Luke 24, verse 20, Cleopas then says, well, how our chief priests and rulers delivered him, that's Jesus, up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Do you see their mindset? Well, he was crucified, so obviously he couldn't be the Redeemer. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Now, years later, we look back and we get to see all that's kind of happening in these places. And it's very interesting and it's kind of fun. But we aren't a people who had to live through that, who dealt with the millennia of law and oppression and rescue. The Israelites are a people who walk through the Old Testament like a people walking through a forest in the midst of the trees. Today, we get to see the beauty of what God is doing because we hopefully can see much more of the forest, even though I think we're still stuck a little bit in it. But we get to see more of it because we know the crucifixion is the way he redeems. We know the crucifixion is the basis for the good news of our rescue. But Cleopas shows that what he was thinking is the same thing the Jews in Rome were thinking. That's why Paul has to explain these things differently. Some of their understanding had to be overcome in terms of chains and crucifixion. This whole understanding that the Messiah was supposed to be a military figure. And Cleopas says, we thought he was going to redeem Israel, but instead he was crucified. And this is the problem with the way that they were understanding the word redeem. 
Now, when I say the word redeemed to most people today, hopefully if you're around element for a while, we understand that this is release from slavery to our sins, that God has broken the bondage that sin has placed over us, that we get to come back into relationship with him again. It's kind of the spiritual context, but the word that redeem had for Cleopas and probably the Jews in Rome, it meant to release from slavery and oppression. They were oppressed by these people. And so these are the views that Jesus and Paul have to overcome. Paul is trying to change their minds by reframing the Old Testament scriptures in light of what God was doing in the person of Jesus. And this is the same process that Paul himself had to go through. And I think the sad thing for most Americans today is that we don't think we're in the same boat as Cleopas or the Jews in Rome, but we all are. We just have different biases, especially when we come to the Bible and the gospel. Let me just uh, give you an example and see if this relates. Cleopas thought the only problem he had, the only slavery he really needed to release from, was the political slavery that was around him. Is that how Christians today feel? A lot, a lot like that. Salvation will come and the world be put right when those who I disagree with politically are gone. When the world becomes a homogenous whole, everybody agrees with me. That's how we think everything's going to be fixed. Cleopas believed and wanted to be like how they would refer to the Messiah as the son of David. Well, surely the son of David is going to set up an earthly kingdom and and be here and squash all of my enemies, a ruler on the earth. Now, Jesus is the son of David. It is shown over and over again by fulfilled prophecies and scriptures that he is that. But the messianic king that he came to be was one that set us free from our own bondage to sin and death. See, they didn't necessarily want salvation from their personal sins. They wanted salvation from the Romans. And like us, they're thinking, if I could just have this economic freedom, well, if I could just have this political freedom from all the chains that the government places upon me, then everything would be all right. And tell me that's not so different than a lot of people today. It's a lot like us. Cleopas, again, thought the only problems in his life were his circumstances, just those circumstances. And if those were gone or made better, then everything would be okay. See, Paul is agreeing with Jesus that throughout his ministry that Jesus actually came to release us from a deeper bondage than that. The Bible teaches us that Jesus came because we're all spiritually slaves deep in our hearts. And because Cleopas didn't see that, didn't see his own spiritual bondage, he didn't think he needed really any other kind of redemption than that physical lifestyle salvation where someone would come and take care of his enemies and get rid of the bad guys. And this is exactly also what Paul is still addressing to the Jews, and he's using his own chains as an example. I mean, let that sink in just for a second. Maybe just just mull that over just a minute. Do we really see the redemption that we need? Do we really understand our condition before God himself? Are we letting God change us so we actually begin to see the world the way that he does? Again, do we really see the need for redemption that Jesus brought? Uh, Tim Keller likes to call it the profundity of redemption because it's very profound, but it seems to confuse us a lot in the things we're, we're looking for. And really, in the end, we all need to wake up. So Paul talks about this. Well, what happens after that? Acts 28, verse 24. And some were convinced by what he says, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves that he parted after Paul made one statement. And this is where Paul again goes back, where he probably gets a little frustrated after talking to them all day. Yay, some believed. Oh, bummer, some didn't. And they're just arguing amongst themselves. 
Paul uses scripture to point out what they're doing. Paul says, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through the Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you'll indeed hear but never understand. You'll indeed see but never perceive for this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should turn with their eyes uh, and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. So then what does Paul do? The same thing he does in lots of places. Verse 28, Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And what happens in AD 70 is the Jerusalem falls by the Romans' hands, and essentially Christianity becomes mainly a Gentile movement. And I also think that Paul's a little optimistic here because I don't think all the Gentiles actually listen (laughs) that well. But the beauty is that God promised certain things and that they are coming true because God is faithful. God isn't just for the Jews. God is for everybody, Jew and Gentile alike. Now again, we don't have all the baggage that the Jews had, but we have other baggage that we brought in and still bring into our worship of God. I mean, and and it goes back to Paul's change, which goes back to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, which which goes back to Cleopas and the words about redemption and understanding and and why Jesus and Paul both have to re-explain, re-narrate everything in their lives that they understood in light of the gospel. Yes, I do. I think Paul got frustrated, but I think Paul gets frustrated with them because he sees himself in them. Maybe he even hopes that Jesus would show up and smack them around like Jesus smacked him around to wake him up. Again, the problem is that Cleopas and the Jews don't recognize that they are slaves to their own sin. And because they don't recognize that, they only want that salvation from their circumstances. They just want a spiritual serenity like a chicken soup for the soul. And if all you want out of a life with Jesus is like calm, serenity, an easy life, I don't think you're ever going to get it. Because the gospel is passionate. And it is about life, and it's about hope and joy. We need God to change our view of the depth of what redemption is. It doesn't matter where we are. If we're in chains like Paul, we're free. We need to have that change in in who we are so we can speak of the reality of what the gospel is no matter where we are. We don't need salvation from our circumstance. We need a change of heart. We are enslaved deep down in our souls until Jesus becomes more important to us than our circumstances, our relationships, our schools, our job, whatever. All the things in our lives are going to continue to enslave us. Keller says this, Do you come like to Jesus saying, I'm a sinner and I need redemption, or do you come saying, I'm a sufferer, I have problems in my circumstances, and I want Jesus Christ to help me? See, I think a lot of people come to Jesus and they say, oh my goodness, I'm going through something really hard. Can you help me out with this? And that's how Jesus is almost portrayed to a lot of people today. Oh, trust in Jesus. He'll bless you. Your life will go better. Well, that's not whatever Jesus, Jesus promises to bless us, but bless us by bringing us into relationship with who he is. And we really need to ask, do we follow Jesus because we want some easy thing in our life or because we truly want redemption? I think when we see the strength of Jesus in his crucifixion, when we understand his calling for us to die to ourselves, to repent, to become weak, to give our life over, that's when we begin to change. If we only want his help in life circumstances, we're never going to understand true life and freedom with him. We will always let our circumstances, whether we're chained or free or stuck in a pandemic, all be things that speak over how we speak the gospel. We're not ever going to live our lives speaking full and free words about grace, about Jesus. We're going to be like Cleopas. We will say, oh, he was crucified, but I thought he would redeem. Oh, I thought Jesus was going to save me from my circumstance. See, Cleopas was discouraged because he didn't see in Jesus' crucifixion all that it was doing, what it was really meant to do. They don't understand that we all truly need 
a redeemer. And this is why when Jesus speaks to the guys on the road or why Paul speaks to the, the guys in Rome, they open the scriptures. They re-narrate everything they've ever known about the scriptures in light of the gospel, Jesus' death and resurrection, the words of the scripture. Again, we are told that Jesus on the road, Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's everything they've ever learned from. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the thing concerning himself. Acts 28, verse 23, from morning till evening, he, Paul, expanded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. The same places, they're re-narrating the scriptures in light of the gospel. I think today there are two ways that we can read the Bible. We can read it in a moralistic way. We come out like Aesop's fables, like we're always trying to find some moral lesson out of it. Or there's a gospel-centered, Christ-centered way. See, the people that Jesus and Paul talk to probably know the Bible very well, but they've never read it with Jesus at the center of it all. And this is what Paul does when he is in his chains. A situation that they all probably would have looked at and said, oh, that's God's judgment on you. You are stuck in those chains. But Paul is saying, no, these chains are part of my witness. Look at where I am. Look at what God has done. He re-narrates his life in terms of the gospel, of these chains actually being a blessing from God. Now, I read this book a bit ago where the author says the sequence in the Bible and people's lives following God, it's usually not uh, like we think this, but but it's usually not, okay, a calling in our life, okay, got it, deep feeling of peace about it, okay, got it, decision to obey, okay, got it, and then smooth sailing. He says that's usually not how it goes. How it usually goes in our lives is we have a calling. And our calling is to love Jesus, love other people. And because of that calling, we're going to find ourselves in situations where we have abject terror. Like, oh my goodness, what is happening now? But hopefully in the midst of that, we still make a decision to obey him. And when we do, we're going to run into big problems. Because God's wisdom is foolishness to the world. But we live in God's wisdom because it really is wisdom. And it's not about our lives being easy. It's about God growing us and teaching us, and, and which leads us to be the people we're supposed to be. So we trust him in the midst of that with those big problems. And that leads to more terror and sometimes even chains like where Paul is. And then we start to have second thoughts. Am I really following God? Am I really doing the thing I'm supposed to be doing? Oh my goodness, what's, what's going on? And that scenario, he says, gets repeated several times. But hopefully on the backside, we continue to trust, and that will eventually lead to deeper faith. No matter where we are, no matter what we go through, everything re-narrated by Christ's rescue of us. If we found ourselves in Paul's position, most likely we would have second thoughts. Well, what did I do to deserve this? You know, three and a half, four years in prison at this point. He's going to spend two more in prison in Rome. You know, what, what the heck is going on? Did I do the wrong thing? I have to tell you, sometimes second thoughts do not mean you did the wrong thing. Well, it does if you end up with like a country music download on your playlist. But other than that, you know, it's, it's not a predictor of the future. When we make a decision and things get hard, you don't always have to second guess where you are or what would have happened if you did something different. Now, we've got to trust God that he's going to work through wherever we are and whatever we are going through. I, I love how John Ortberg went, once talked about marriage like this, and he says, Never does the Bible command anyone, if you're having difficulty in your marriage, try managing it by spending a large number of hours speculating on what would have happened if you married someone else. Because it doesn't help. It doesn't help. And this is true of all of our decisions. Oh, my kids are crazy. What if I didn't have kids? Well, if you got kids, it doesn't matter. What if I go back in time and buy Apple stock? You can't. You can't. What if, what if, what if? We live in what is. 
what is in right now. We have made decisions in our lives, some of them good, some of them bad. And we end up in a spot where we are, and God can use all things for His glory and our good. We allow the gospel to re-narrate wherever we are in terms of what He has done to rescue us, whether in chains or free. And, this, and in that, we actually do get some decisions. And these are the decisions we get to make. Will we believe and trust in Jesus' love and place our entire lives in His more than capable hands? Will we stop trusting that we know better than God and see our lives through a gospel-centered lens? Will we be humble enough to accept His grace and be restored? And then will we also heed the call that we are a people who have been sent to our families, to our jobs, to our neighborhoods, to our friends? Because there is no other life than the life that we have. If, are we going to live it for us? And if we live it for us, it's always going to end up in regret. Or are we going to live it for Jesus? And we live it for Jesus, we may have scary situations, but we'll have a life that is full and free. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says this, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you understand what that is? That's a re-narration of our lives in terms of the gospel. While we were still sinners, while we were running away, unable to do anything about our condition, while we were helpless, either far away or near and bitter, while we were unable to see how bad the situation was, Jesus died. Why? For us. To take away our sins and our rebellion against God, to restore us into relationship again. And when Jesus died on that cross, that was his decision to bring us home. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people group. And are we willing to live with him, whether in chains or free? Are we willing to be a people where we allow him to re-narrate everything in our lives around the truth of the gospel? And I think where we are, that's a good question for us today. Because there's lots of things in our world right now that is hard. Some people are losing jobs. Some people are sick. Some people are frustrated. Some people are isolated. Some people are alone. Can we be a people who understand the gospel enough that it re-narrates everything about our lives to trust him wherever we are, whether in chains or free, to speak of the good news of his grace over us? We become a people who get to speak hope and life wherever we are when the gospel re-narrates all that we are. And this is one of the reasons that at Element, we always come to this place where we talk about communion. And again, I know where you are at home. Communion can be difficult and, and awkward. But communion was meant to be a reminder of what God did to rescue us. That's why you take a piece of bread or a cracker and you break it like his body that was broken for us. And you either drink that with grape juice or wine or you dip it in grape juice or wine as a reminder that Christ's body was broken for us, his blood was shed for us, and that event is what re-narrates all of our lives in terms of what the gospel is. God's great grace and rescuing and saving us. I think when Jesus says, you know, do this in remembrance of me, I think that's often. And that's why we try and do it every week at Element as a reminder of what he did to reset our focus around the good news of the gospel that re-narrates our lives, whether in chains or free. We get to speak of that goodness of who he is. So I'd invite you, if you'd like to, to be able to do that with your family, maybe some friends, or if you're alone, even alone, because you are not alone. He is with you. If you need prayer, you can send prayer requests to prayer.element.org or connect.element.org. And if you need someone to maybe pray with you, if you want someone to maybe swing by and share communion with you, uh, we have people who would do that with you and, and for you. Let us know because we would love to come alongside you no matter what you're going through right now. 
and maybe speak about how the gospel can re-narrate everything that you are going through right now. Let us know if you need us to come alongside you. Guys, we, we give because God gave so much to us, giving us part of our worship. That re-narrates the American vision of everything, of how we are supposed to be a generous people and give away to help one another. And I would also say, if you have access to the sermon notes, that you would either sit down with people in your household or maybe a couple close friends, uh, maybe call somebody and walk through some of those questions with one another. You know, how God re-narrates our lives in terms of what the gospel is, how he rescues, how he redeems, how he saves out of his own goodness and love for us, that he has first loved us. It's not something we do that make him love us, makes him love us. It's something that, that he has done for us. So we become a people who live and walk simply in his grace and his goodness because of his rescue of us. Let that re-narrate everything you're going through right now. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would take us and help us, as we almost say every week here, to understand the gospel better. What Jesus' life, death, and resurrection means to us as a people. How you bring us in and change who we are and how we see the world, whether we are in chains or free. All in terms of what you are doing to rescue and save, not just us, but the world around us. And I ask that by us understanding the gospel, we'd be able to speak that out to the world around us, just like Paul does, just like Jesus does, to people who misunderstand what following you is meant to bring into our lives. And we can maybe begin to re-narrate our own circumstances in ways that speak of the great grace that we have received, that we'd be a people who speak in utter honesty about what we are going through, but also what you are doing in and through us. Teach us to be a people who go through life that see the world around us as you see it. To see the people around us as you see them. And that we would be honest enough in our lives to have it all re-narrated by the gospel of what you've done to rescue and save us so we could speak that out in truthful honesty to those around us. Teach us to be your people, to honor and glorify you, by how our lives are found in you. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.